Welcome back to the NASPA Leadership Podcast. On today's episode, we get to know the new production team, unpack some high school trauma, and talk about the role of culture in leadership education. Let's start the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 2022-2023 season of the NASPA SLPKC Leadership Educators Podcast. I am Dr. V, and I am super excited to be a part of this production team for this season. Uh, Before we get into any of the great and wonderful plans that we have prepared for all of you, I would love it if the rest of the podcast team could also take a moment and introduce themselves. Um, The charge that I've given our co-hosts and our producer is to introduce themselves the way they would on the first day of their class. So once you've had an opportunity to hear from each of them, I will go ahead and introduce myself again as well. But Derek, could you please start us off? Of course. Well, hello, everyone. Um, My name is Derek. And how I introduce myself in class is that I usually say my name is Derek. I use he, him, el pronouns. I always recommend everybody that speaks a secondary language, third language, how many other languages you speak to um, use pronouns in that language as well. Um, as Dr. V mentioned, I am the producer of the SOPKC podcast. So I'm so excited to be here with you all engaging with our fabulous group of leadership educators that will be coming through our virtual studio, if you will, and we'll be able to provide some breadth and depth to our field as well. Um, I'm currently a PhD student at Florida State University in the higher education program. I'm starting my second year from the starting of this recording, and I'm very excited um, to just be able to get involved with everything and be able to not only meet our guests that are coming in, but also be able to engage with everything. I'm a first-generation Cuban-American, and I'm very excited to not only draw in the experiences of everybody in the field of leadership education, but also highlight some of those voices that we may not necessarily be hearing from as much as well. So I'm very excited and I'll pass it over to the rest of our team so they can introduce themselves as well. Hello, my name is Brittany DeVise. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I am a PhD candidate at Florida State University. I have officially been here five years by the time this podcast will come out, um, which is exciting. So um, in the candidacy phase nearing the end and a, and a perspective will also be submitted by the time that you are listening to this. Um, so on the first day of class, I always just give students kind of an overview of who I am and, and what I care deeply about. And, you know, I typically teach a gender and leadership class, so I get to share some of my positionality in that as well. But I'm from Ohio originally, which is always really important to my story growing up in a small town. Um, I went to college and didn't quite know what I was going to do when I got there, but I sure did try to figure it out. Um, And leadership really called me in. So that is why I still continue to give to this work in this field, um, because it's the way I found my home there. So then I decided to come on down to Florida State um, and get my master's in higher ed and then decided to stick around and get my Ph.D. as well. Um, I'm really lucky to work in the Leadership Learning Research Center alongside colleagues like V and Derek and Dr. Kathy Guthrie and team, um, where we get to do some really incredible work and I get to be surrounded by some brilliant minds. In my free time when I'm not doing leadership education and writing and everything in between, um, I love to take advantage of Florida and and read and enjoy the beach and the beautiful weather down here um, because I did not grow up with sunshine all year round. So that is a little bit about me. You will hopefully get to know more about all of us through this season, but I'm excited y'all are joining us virtually. Hi everyone, I'm Anna Maya. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm super excited to be joining this team. I work full-time in student affairs. I've been in student affairs for, gosh, over 11 years now. I went to University of Maryland College Park for my master's, and then now I am a doctoral candidate at University of South Florida in educational psychology. 
And my dissertation is focused on the culturally relevant leadership learning model and students' experiences and doing qualitative research. Actually, V is on my committee. So very exciting to be a part of this team and to be learning more about what's going on in our field. So I actually grew up in Brazil and moved to the U.S. when I was 12. And that's a big part of my identity and how I enter this work. So, yeah, really excited to be here. And I really love exploring how this scholar practitioner plays out. And so how do we come to this work infusing research into facilitating experiences for students? And I have the opportunity to teach in our leadership studies minor here at University of Tampa. And I'm also the director for leadership and competency development at UT. So I work in our student affairs side of the house as well. That's great, everyone. Thanks for sharing. As I might have mentioned at the top, my name is Dr. V. Chenu. I use he, his pronouns, and I am an assistant professor of organizational and community leadership at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Uh, I am originally from New York and lived there for the first eight years of my life, but I've spent over 30 years in Florida, uh, 25 of which were spent in the city of Miami specifically. Um, I got a bachelor's degree in psychobiology. I think many of our students know it more popularly as neuroscience science from the University of Miami. And then I stayed on both working full-time and earning a master's degree uh, in mental health counseling. So I love to tell people that I am professionally trained in listening. If there's nothing else I can do to help you, I will always offer to be able to listen. Um, <clears throat> and so as I was finishing up my master's degree uh, and for seven, eight years after I was done with my master's degree, I actually worked at the University of Miami, um, first as an administrative assistant, and then later as what was, and I think still is known as an academic and career advisor in residence. And so I had an office where I provided supplemental academic and career advising services to the 900 first year students that lived in my building uh, every year. My office was between the dining hall uh, and the laundry room. So as you would imagine, there was a steady stream of people with all kinds of questions, everything under the sun. You would imagine our first year students asked. Over the 10 years I did that job, I pretty much saw and heard it all. And in the last four years of that commitment, I was also my university's academic ombudsperson. So if anybody's familiar with ombuds work, you know that it's essentially being a grievance officer or being an academic case manager. So I got to work with students as they appealed discriminatory grade practices, accusations of bias in the classroom, and in some cases, what they felt was unfair dismissal from either a program or from the university uh, as a whole. So as you would imagine, somebody who was an academic advisor, somebody who was an academic grievance officer, I got to spend a lot of time with faculty. Uh, and if you are somebody who spends a lot of time with faculty, or if you are a faculty member and you spend a lot of time with grad students, you tend to say things or hear things like, you should get a PhD one day. Uh, so finally, I had to give in to the advice and I left the University of Miami and joined the in-state football rivals, the Florida State University's uh, higher education program from where I graduated in uh, 2018 with my PhD. I've been here at the University of Illinois since January of 2019, and I teach and do research as most of uh, tenure stream faculty do. The two courses that I've come to be known around campus to teach are Leadership Communications, which is a course in transformational leadership wrapped up in principles of uh, business ethics and uh, etiquette. And the other course I teach is Collaborative Leadership, which is the capstone course for our undergraduate minor. And it's rooted in David Chrislip's Collaborative Leadership Framework, as well as some pieces of systems thinking in leadership, as well as design thinking in leadership. I live in Urbana, Illinois with my two dogs, Charlie, he's a white terrier mix, and Milo, who is my pandemic puppy, uh, he's half poodle and half shih tzu. 
So with that being said, I think we might actually turn our attention to getting to know all of us a little bit better. Um, one of the things that I think we're going to spend some time talking to our guests about is what is important to them, what do they think about the, the field and the world around them, and really how do they come to this work, what drives them, what motivates them, what keeps them going um, in those long days and those busy hours. And so I thought it might be good for us to take a few moments and talk a little bit about how we come to this workout, maybe with some comments around our positionality and what keeps us motivated and moving forward in some of the work that we do. So if, if anybody would like to go first, please go right ahead. I can go ahead and get us started, V. So this is Derek again. Um, so for me personally, I, as Brittany mentioned, I also work as a graduate assistant in the Leadership Learning Research Center and also um, an instructor for the Undergraduate Certificate in Leadership Studies at Florida State. And for me, my positionality, like I mentioned also before, I'm a first-generation Cuban-American, and that's my most salient identity and has been for my entire life, and I would dare to say will be for the rest of my life, um, because that shows up in a lot of spaces that I come through. I uh, Specifically, at Florida State, I teach Latinx leadership development, so it's a class centered around the 10 Latino leadership principles by Juana Bordas and the power of Latino, and Latino leadership. And for me that has always been the center of my work. I remember when I was going through high school, middle school, it was my friends had a game of how many clubs was Derek the president of in high school or how many yearbook pictures is Derek going to come out in in middle school, right? And I think it was important for me when I was reflecting on what my leadership journey was that my leadership journey very much was positional, but I always saw it as something more. I said, yes, I could be the quote unquote president or the quote unquote secretary of an organization, but how does that relationship look like? How does power dynamics look like. I am similar to me. I was born and raised in Hialeah, Florida, which is right next to Miami, Florida. And my city is very much Cuban-American as well. So everybody talks about how Miami is such a diverse melting pot. And that was great. But my city, everybody kind of looked and acted like me, even though it may not be the mainstream, you know, identities that we see in a lot of places throughout the country here in the United States. And being able to grow up in that environment and then shifting over to the very different Tallahassee, Florida, and North Florida, I think that's where I had a big culture shock, cultural awakening, which ties into my positionality as a Latinx individual. Not necessarily. I think I had a very good experience at Florida State, very good experience in leadership education as a field in and of itself. But that positionality, I think, is what drives me to my work, my dissertation in the future, my kind of research agenda. And the main reason why I'm also here as a producer for the podcast, right? I think it's important to highlight all these amazing voices that people have. I mean, those identities are the ones that mainly show up in my work, along with other identities as well that we'll be able to talk about more as the season continues. And also if we ever get to meet in person at conferences or anything like that as well. But I'm going to turn it over to another member of our team so they can ask these questions as well. I'm happy to jump in. Again, this is Brittany. I think this is a great question, right? How do we come to this work? And I think oftentimes for folks who are in the higher end student affairs realm, we ask this a lot, right? Like what brought you here? But specifically how we come to this work, I think, is a, is a blend of our stories and our positionalities and all the ways that we come to this. So similar to Derek, I did the things in high school that they tell you to do to get to a good college, right? Um, so you're in the National Honor Society, you are the president of something, you do the positional leadership that you can write on the common application and get yourself to a good school. So I thought I was just knocking it out of the park. And when I was applying to Ohio State, um, which is where I knew I really wanted to go, someone had mentioned that there was scholars programs that you could apply to. And that sounded like another really good thing to do for the lifespan, right, that we should uh, get ourselves on a good track. So I went ahead and just threw in an application to one that had leadership in the title. Sounded like a really good idea. 
all the rest of them were about majors. I also didn't know what I wanted to study. So that was really my only option if I wanted to, <laughs> to engage in this type of format at Ohio State. So I was lucky that Kathy Cranick at The Ohio State University uh, decided to take a chance on me and put me into Mount um, Leadership Society Scholars, which is a program in honor of honor of Ruth Weimer Mount, who was the first dean of students at Ohio State. So I got there and we got to move in early, which I thought was the coolest. And we got there and about two or three days into um, our kind of own welcome program, I really had my whole world blown up of what leadership is and what it was supposed to be and what it was supposed to look like. Um, and I was quickly humbled that I wasn't quite the leader I thought I was, right? So a lot of my leadership before that had been transactional, again, doing the things I thought I was supposed to do to be a good student, a scholar, friend, whatever that may be, to be a part of my community. And they really did the deep work with us over my entire four years at Ohio State to really teach us what leadership could be and what we could dream it to be together. We did critical work in our community um, with community partners and places where they really taught us different lenses to leadership. And I just feel so grateful that I was able to do that. So I decided I wanted to go into higher ed before I picked an undergrad major, which for any undergrads listening, don't do that. But I did do it and it worked out okay for me, but I wouldn't recommend it. And I was lucky enough also at Ohio State that Kathy went ahead and introduced me to Amy Barnes, who was a critical part of my story and trajectory as well introduced me to the leadership studies minor where I was able to take as many classes as humanly possible I did at Ohio State to learn from her and other scholars in our field at Ohio State. And that brought me to Florida State. I came here and I thought student affairs has all of these options. Let me try everything. And in my second semester, I got to sit down with Kathy Guthrie and Vichanu in class. And after class two, I walked up and said, what do you have for me <laughs> that I can be doing to work with you two more often? And so they so lovingly welcomed me into the Leadership Learning Research Center as a master's intern with no clue what she was doing to work on some projects with them. And that is what brought me to the LLRC, as many of you all may know it, in this work. And I have been there for four years now, going on my fifth year, and just feel really lucky to be surrounded by scholars who challenge my thinking all the time. I think I got a, a quick taste of that when I first got to Ohio State, and I've continued to crave it ever since for folks that are going to challenge my thinking and paradigms around what leadership education should look like and who it's for, right, and how we make it more accessible as well. So at Florida State, I've been lucky to work on many projects that LRC does, but really the, the best part of my work is I get to teach a gender and leadership class to students who desperately want to talk about how our work identities, our experiences really impact our views of leadership. And the thing I love the most about the class, I was just onboarding my new teaching assistant and he was like, what, is, what does it look like when we teach this class? I said, it doesn't ever look the same because I let the students tell me what they need from class and then we make it together every time. And yes, it's more work, but that is so important for me and my positionality as an educator is letting the students tell me what they need and what they hope and dream for our class and space and using the 15 weeks to get us to that point as well. So that work has been so important for me. I feel very blessed to continue to do it, especially with these scholars on the podcast as well. Wow, this is so I love hearing you all stories. This is wonderful. So for me, really, positionality is at the core of my work and how I think about being a leadership educator, identifying as a leadership educator. And so as a Brazilian and identifying as Latinx, I also see and think a lot about my white privilege presenting as white and what that means in the space, how students perceive me, how other practitioners may perceive me, other faculty. And so that's been a huge part of how I enter this work. And also my queer identity is something very near and dear to my heart and something that I've been disclosing more and more frequently in different spaces with students, 
more as an opportunity to really empower them to, to feel like they can open up and be their true selves in this work. Being an immigrant and coming from Brazil, right, there are a lot of things in Brazilian history that are similar to U.S. history, but I've also really absorbed this outlook of critically looking at our society like systemic racism, how that plays a part into um, leadership education. And to me, I, I cannot separate social justice from this work. It is inherently intertwined. And so that is the positionality and how I come to this work. And, and a lot of that, I think, had to do with my childhood and driving to school and seeing the poverty day to day, you know, having a child just as old as me knocking on the car window asking for money. Right? Some of those images were very clear for me as an early childhood. And then um, just just thinking about how can I be the change, right, even that early in my life and living in this constant chaos. So of, of Latin America, you know, many different countries, I think there's a little bit different structure than there is when you move to the US. So I feel like I've always been in both of these worlds, right? Really thinking about my growing up in Brazil and then living in the US and what privilege I have to be here as well. And then the other element in this work that's so important to me is this collective approach to leadership and relational approach where as a woman entering different spaces and really thinking about how I can work with others. And once I got exposed to the relational leadership model, the social change model, right, all of these other theories, and that was so empowering to see that these are different ways of leading. And now I've been really leaning into the growth mindset with leadership education and also what it means to be vulnerable as an instructor, as a facilitator, opening up to my students, right? So like disclosing my queer identity, but disclosing maybe other stories that are connected that can serve as counter narratives and also kind of unmodeling the way of what a traditional leader or prototype leader looks like. So that's really intertwined into the work that I do. And in the beginning of my career, I really focused in on this global leadership model. And that was part of my seminar paper for my master's program. And that has really evolved as I've embraced more of this complexity in our work. So I think that a lot of that lies with having difficult conversations with students. And I, as a psychology major, I also find it difficult to separate that psych aspect into our work. And I'll also add that a really powerful experience for me as an undergrad, um, I went to Rollins College, so small liberal arts school, but I had the opportunity to apply to go to leadership. And I went to leadership my junior year, and that really changed how I viewed this work and how I also approach teaching and facilitating and from an experiential point of view, too. Yeah, that's that's great. Thank you both. Thank you all, all three of you for for sharing those stories. I um <laughs> I, I think when when somebody asked me, so so Dr. V, how did you get into leadership? I think the first thing that comes to my mind is high school. And I went to an inner city high school that had two magnet programs, one for medical sciences, one for performing arts. You could probably guess which one I was in. Uh can't sing or dance to save my life. So I went to this inner city school and uh, they had lots of uh, co-curricular programs for students, and we were, you know, as as magnets uh, enrolled students, we were allowed to take part in them. So you may find this hard to believe, but I was in the chess club. I know, I know, it doesn't sound like something Doctor V would be into, but I totally was in the chess club in high school. And uh, 
we had as many clubs do an advisor, right? So Mr. Pizzo, shout out to Mr. Pizzo if you're still out there. He was, he, I thought, he, I think he taught like American government or civics or whatever it was called at the time. I never took a course with him, but he was the the advisor for the chess club. And so one day we're sitting around practicing because you have to practice chess clearly. And we, we started asking him about his life and you know, we were all getting ready for college. So we asked him about his college experiences. And he told us that in college, he majored in leadership. And, you know, 17 year old V was like, wait, 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 you did what now? And he told us a little bit about what he learned and how he learned it. And it was really just sort of eye-opening to me because at that point in my life, I had never really thought about leadership as something you could study. I just thought it was something you did. And as long as you did leadership, you were probably doing it right. And unbeknownst to me, there was just sort of this entire history and tradition of understanding what it meant to lead and then using that knowledge as opposed to simply coming up with the best solutions you can for the problem that happens to be in front of you at the time. And so that was probably my awaken, what I refer to as my awakening to leadership, right? Like that's when I realized, oh, leadership at the capital L is a thing. And then for the, as I went into college, I was an RA, I was a resident assistant. And, you know, if you've ever been a resident assistant or no resident assistants, people will tell them things like you have the most coveted leadership position on campus. Lots of people want this. Hundreds of people apply and you were selected. I felt super special to have been one of those people. But in the three years I was an RA, it was never explained to me why. So why is what I'm doing leading? I understand that we got to keep track of the keys. I understand that we have to report when residents break rules. I understand that we do programming to enrich other people. But I didn't necessarily associate those responsibilities or those tasks with the mantle of leadership. And one of the things I appreciate, Derek, Brittany, Anna, listening to your stories is that our, our many of our stories of how we come to this work are stories of dissonance, where people told us things or we expected things, and then life didn't really go the way we were led to believe it was. And it, it actually makes me feel better about telling my story because my story is also one of dissonance. People kept telling me I was a leader. People kept telling me leadership was something I could study. People kept telling me, people kept telling me, and it never really sat well with me. And so I built a whole career <laughs> around trying to understand. So what what is this thing that we mean when we say leadership? And what I've learned is that there are as many definitions of leading out there as there are people trying to do it or understand it or teach it. So I've had to set my dissonance aside and do it anyway, right? And try to teach people ways and means of leading that are actually different from the way I myself was taught because I couldn't see myself so frequently in what I was being expected to do. And so when I am doing research projects, when I'm working with my students, when I'm in a classroom, I am constantly asking them, so what does this mean to you? How does this make sense to you? Where does this fit into your life? Because the people who taught me didn't ask me that question. They just told me, do this thing, perform this action. You know, you're responsible for this task. But there wasn't ever a whole lot of meaning making for me uh, in those processes. And I don't want the students that I have impact over to not have those meaning making experiences. Lots of people paved a path for me to have opportunities and access to things I wouldn't have otherwise had uh, the ability to reach. And so I try to do that for all of my students, whether they're doctoral students, you know, master's graduate students, uh, undergraduate students, colleagues, try to create as many of those connections because I would never be able to pay back the people that help pave the path for me, but I can make somebody else's path a little bit easier to navigate. And so that's how I come to this work. I try to use as many of my privileged identities as I possibly can <laughs> to create space for others, to elevate voices that aren't mine. And I also 
have somewhat begrudgingly had to learn to let other people do that for me too, which if you are somebody who's used to kind of being active and directive in your life, it's actually really hard to take a step back and let somebody else with more protections fight for you. But I have learned that that actually may be their role, right? Like maybe we do need some of our more protected colleagues to fight for us so that we can fight for the less protected uh, among us. Anna, you were very transparent about some of the identities and some of the ideas that you are now, right, newly kind of grappling with and figuring out how to talk to students about or call, or even ourselves. And over this summer, I've had some experiences that have led me to think about two broad ideas that I'm trying to integrate more into my work and into my life and, and into my projects. Um, and the first one is radical empathy. How would empathy show up if we weren't afraid of the consequences of being empathetic? And, and if we were to figure that out, is there a role for that in leadership and, and leading and, and the kinds of responsibilities it means to take on uh, the capacity to lead? And the second one is actually something that I'm referring to as fearless grief in leadership, right? Many of us have these backgrounds and Bridges models of transition. And one of the things he talks about is the losing, the leaving behind and the letting go. And in my classes, we, we have talked about this in the past. And this past semester, somebody just pointed at the model and said, well, isn't that just grief? Like, and, and the answer of course was yes, but it helped me realize that grief is one of those universal human emotions that clearly must play a role in some a role rather in something like leadership, but we don't talk about it, or at least not enough of us talk about it in deeply enough fashion and what it would mean to, to grieve the loss, the letting go of something in order to become better leaders, to have better systems, to have stronger families, to have more robust communities. It means letting go of things. And I don't know that we always prepare leaders for that grieving process. We sort of treat it as like, well, this is something you do on your own time because you got to get on the stage to lead. You're the capital L leader. Well, what if what if we put that grief out there to say, if you feel loss, if you feel pain associated with letting go, actually, that is a, as much a leadership capacity, a leadership skill, an area to grow as a leader as any of the other things that we try to teach and train and give people experiences to practice. So yeah, that's a little bit about me and a little bit about the production team. I think now we'll take a short break. And when we come back, we are going to get even more deeply into uh, things that we want to talk about and things that we care about. All right, and welcome back to the second half of our episode. Uh, we've decided to take a few minutes to just interview each other, basically. Uh, so Anna, I think you might have the first question for us. V, I have so many questions for you. This is actually really hard. <laughs> I've been reading a lot on your work and I would love for you to share uh, some of the work that you've been doing and the research you've been doing with the, the culturally relevant leadership learning model and also social justice and leadership and this intersection between both. Yeah, that's... A whole episode. Um, I'll back up and tell a, a few stories. The first is actually the story of my own dissertation, where I was forming what has become my kind of overall research agenda and the, the questions that drive all of the work that I do. When I look back at my own life, when I look at the work that I've done with students, and when I look at, when I anticipate the kind of impact I want to have in the world, the thing that sits at the heart of all of that is this question about 
when we teach people to lead, when we prepare them for the roles and the responsibilities of leadership, are we really helping them create positive and sustainable, authentic change? Or are we simply informing them on how to assimilate to dominant norms, right? And I think that even before when we were talking, when I was talking about the dissonance I've had around leadership, it's because I was grinding against those two different kinds of things. I wanted to be an agent of positive change, but I was also expected to adhere to the norms of my environment. As a result, my leadership took shape in a particular form. And so I'm trying to get as many people as possible out of that double bind that I found myself in. Um, my own dissertation uses a framework of cultural responsiveness that really centers cultural relevance in, in education broadly as being related to how teachers show up and their identities, um, the processes and procedures of teaching, and the environments that we create as educators, that we co-create with our learners. So my own dissertation actually doesn't use a lot of the culturally relevant leadership learning framework, but it does speak to the cultural aspects of teaching and learning and leadership. And I very specifically tried to borrow from work that had been developed in the K-12 sector, because where do our college students come from? They come from the K-12 sector. <laughs> so many of them had actually been educated in some of these settings and contexts by teachers and others who were trying to do this. And by not picking up on what their high schools have laid down, we actually were creating a disconnect between how they were expected to operate in one environment and what it takes to be successful in the other. And in the worst cases, in the places where faculty and administrators and advisors and supervisors and mentors and sponsors weren't educated in some of these kinds of factors, they were actively doing harm to students who showed up knowing more than they did. So then it became the student's responsibility to educate the adults in their environment. And that is incredibly problematic to me, especially given how much we charge people to come to higher education in the first place. So that's kind of the, the background and some of the context around how I've come to use cultural responsiveness, cultural relevance, and in the more recent parts of my career, the orientation around social justice. I have some colleagues at Florida State and I, we are working on taking the ideas behind the culturally relevant leadership learning model and attempting to measure it. So many people are familiar with Tracy Tyree's work with the socially responsible leadership scale and its connection to the social change model of leadership. We are trying to do something similar with the culturally relevant leadership learning model to demonstrate its empirical validity and, in a best case scenario, devise high impact teaching practices that not only allow us to be impactful, but also mindful mindful of the cultures that students come from and the communities and, and organizations that they want to go into in the future. The social justice work is a little bit more challenging. My biggest project around social justice and leadership actually comes from my affiliation with Leadership. I'm a senior research associate for Leadership Incorporated. And the survey that Leadership, rather, participants receive comes from me, uh, comes back to me at the end. And it really uh, is asking questions around social justice attitudes, beliefs, behaviors, and relationships. And so what I'm attempting to do, Anna, you said in your earlier comments, you know, for you, you have a hard time disentangling leadership from social justice. I'm trying to re-entangle it, right? And not just haphazardly, but to demonstrate that leadership training, education, and development experiences not only help grow us as leaders, but if we were to think of social justice as a separate phenomenon, there are attendant growths in social justice as well. And if we think of them as the same thing, we're deeply intertwined, then actually this rising tide lifts us in both directions.
lifts us in leadership development and lifts us in social justice capacity and allyship. So that's a little bit about how my work touches on some of those kinds of things. And I will affirm that I just because that's where I am now, that is certainly not the place where I started as a graduate student all those many years ago. And I can only imagine that as we develop more and better tools to understand the world, ourselves, our role in, in lots of different kinds of human configurations, uh, my work will also change and evolve to mirror some of that, as well as my own values around leadership and justice and change. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. And yeah, this ever evolving where, where our work is heading and as we learn new things and different approaches to having that growth mindset, right, connected mm-hmm. even to, to your work. And I, as a follow-up, I was wondering if you could share too from your experience and taking the practitioner's lens, right, how have you seen that be integrated in the classroom or in facilitation experiences mm-hmm. where as educators, we're really integrating some of these concepts? Yeah, I think that's that's a great question. And, and something I should have mentioned in my last response, which I'll talk about now, is your own dissertation work actually is in measuring some of the aspects of culturally relevant leadership learning. Uh, Greg French and I wrote a chapter on operationalizing culturally relevant leadership learning, right? Though these ideas look great in a textbook on a page, but then how do you actually do this work in everyday life? And in order for us to answer some of those questions, we actually had to go back and reformulate parts of the model. And in conversations you and I have had about your emerging work, it's helpful to hear that some of what you're finding in a practice space not only relates to culturally relevant leadership learning, but some of the modifications we made also seems to be true for the students that you're interviewing. So I think that that's incredibly helpful. And I'm actually looking forward to the ways in which your data will challenge what we have written, because it means that we get to rethink how we put that together and then subsequently teach our classes differently, run our programs differently, and even research and write about models like this differently as well. In my own class, I try to, in my own classes rather, I try to integrate as much of the culturally relevant leadership learning model and other similar models as much as I can. As a matter of fact, Brittany and I are just about to start writing a piece about applying leadership models to the leadership education, training, development, and and programmatic initiatives that happen on college campuses. So I'm really looking forward to diving into that so that we can explain to other people, how do we translate this into real world practical applications? And here on the University of Illinois campus, I work closely with the Illinois Leadership Center. I am a lead facilitator for their inclusion program, and I will be a guest speaker for their Donaldson Leadership Retreat this semester. And in both of those programs, One is a hybrid online in-person, a four to six hour commitment for students. The other is a a, a residential kind of very uh, intensive retreat. We are looking at infusing the concepts associated with cultural relevance, cultural responsiveness, and social justice into that curriculum to send the message that this is where we're going in leadership. When we look at the work that's emerging in almost every sector where leadership plays a role, the impact of social justice inclusion, diversity, equity, anti-racism, anti-discriminatory practices and lifestyles is undeniable. So we are either going to lead this or we're going to be a victim of it. And I would much rather be part of making it happen than having it happen to me. So there's there's lots of this work happening, I think, in, in programs across the country and potentially around the world, certainly in some of the things that I have access to in terms of classes, programs, and retreats. It's happening there as well. And one of the most educational pieces for me 
in trying to take these theoretical and conceptual frameworks into the lives of students is that they will tell me when I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> students have no problem telling me, Dr. V, you said something, and I don't think I agree with you, and here's why. And I really appreciate when students do that because they're they're holding me accountable, right? Like they're telling me mm -hmm. the thing that I never had the strength to tell my mentors and my supervisors and my bosses and my program leads, which is, I understand what you're saying, but it doesn't work that way for me. I think we need more people giving us that feedback so that we can find things that do actually work for them so that we can stop doing the work of assimilation and start doing the work of positive and justifiable change. Yeah. And that, and that says a lot about the environment that you're creating where you're allowing for that voice to come through. Right. And as an educator, I think there's a lot you can do to create that, that kind of brave space where students feel like they can speak up and contribute to the conversation and really honoring the whole person. And every person is an asset to the learning environment. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. The um, one of the for, for the leadership retreat I'm, I'm a part of, I was just working on the the introduction to the retreat, and I'm literally calling it safe, brave, vulnerable, and courageous, because the place we're trying to get to is where in that retreat, we can have people interact in ways that are bravely vulnerable and courageous, not just so that they have opportunities to practice, but so that they can take it back to their organizations on campus and get the cultures of their clubs to shift, to get them to a place where they can more easily solve technical problems because they've addressed the adaptive problem, which has at its heart a social justice issue. <laughs> but students don't necessarily or automatically think about the technical problem that they're facing in that way. We're trying to get them to that place. And one of the ways we do it is by creating that kind of environment where they get to show up in that way. Yeah, that's wonderful. The, uh, my question is actually a follow well, it wasn't meant to be a follow-up, but it's a perfect follow-up to your and Anna's dialogue there about it that as well. One reason I know all four of us agree to do this fun side project of this podcast in this season is that there is a lot of scholarship out there and it just keeps growing and growing and growing and it is brilliant and, you know, groundbreaking, but it's often hard to keep up with, even for folks who may have more time as faculty or may have more time as scholars than some of our friends on the practitioner or staff side of house. So what are some ways that you keep up with scholarship when it feels like often we're just treading water or trying to stay afloat, especially in the middle of like a fall or spring, right? When we are grading and doing administrative responsibilities and things too, what are ways that you keep up with scholarship and know that we are hoping this podcast is one of those ways mm -hmm. to do that as well. So how are we two part? How do you do it as a person? And also how do, how do you think the podcast will help us do it this season as well? Yeah, we love our double barrel questions, right? I, I said I wouldn't do one, but I did do one. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, it's totally, it's totally fine. So the the short answer to how do I keep up with with what's going on around me is the, the short answer is I cheat. <laughs> and so I want Tell to us. explain, I want to explain what I mean when I say I cheat. So everybody, I imagine, has these things they have to do in life that they don't like to do. Washing the dishes, mm -hmm. vacuuming, running errands in the car, like whatever whatever it is. So what I try to do is I try to pair a task I really don't like with something I either really do like or I'm really interested in. Mm -hmm. So for example, a podcast like ours, right? Like I've got this huge list of things, you know, there, there are quite a few of us competing in this space, right? And we've all kind of got our own brand of it. And none of the two brands are really all that similar. So whenever I've got to wash dishes or vacuum or give my dogs a bath, I've got that podcast going in the background uh, and I'm doing my best to have a general awareness of what's being said, knowing that I can always go back to it and listen to it again. 
articles are a little bit harder, right? You can't, it's harder to mm -hmm. do another task while you're also reading an article. So what I'll do is I will skim an article. And if it looks interesting, or if I, if I have questions after reading the title, right? Many of us have questions after just reading the title of some article. Mm -hmm. What I'll do is I'll bring it to class and we'll take 15 minutes in one of my classes. And I'll say, over the past week, I ran across this article. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't read the whole thing, but that's okay because most of my students don't read everything I give them anyway. <laughs> and I say, we're going to take 15 minutes and I want you to read this article. I want you to jot down a couple of thoughts you have about it. I'm going to do the same thing and we're going to talk about it. And in my class, we just read it together. Like if I don't have time to read it, my students don't have time to read either. Let's, if it's important, let's make the time to read it. Yeah. So the, the answer of I cheat is in my private life, I try to pair keeping up with the things I otherwise have to do. And in the more professional sides of my life, I try to get my students to read things or review things or listen to podcast episodes or watch TED Talks as a part of the class. And then it informs the pedagogy of what we're doing. And it's nice because a lot of that stuff is current. So I get to pair the ideas that have come to us from the historic, right? The, the stories that are often told. I teach that, but I teach it as the story that's often told. And then I get to bring in a new thing, a different thing, a thing that I may or may not even agree with. And then I get to figure out how my students respond to it. And some of those things persist from semester to semester. Some of them don't. Yeah, and I think I can help with the double barrel because I feel really bad I've double barreled you. Okay. Um, but I think I, our podcast, what we had hoped and dreamed, and hopefully you all find throughout the season, right, is that often many of us don't have mm -hmm. the time capacity to read the 30 to 40 pages, especially the dissertations that come out and may not mm -hmm. be the more digestible versions of themselves yet. So we're hoping to bring in guests um, that can make their work condensed to 30 minutes of dialogue that we hope is entertaining and gives you that something to listen to on the way to commute to work or during your lunch break, if you take a walk, or also selfishly for me in my gender and leadership class, I try not to have more than a couple readings a week and then pair it with a podcast or video. Mm -hmm. And it is very hard to find folks that are situated in leadership in the way that we are, especially focusing on the experience of college students. So I love that this will be a, a resource for them as well, as they often tell me that they like those better than the readings too. So <laughs> our Gen Z students are feeling similar to we are. So I think that brings us up to a close to wrap up here, but we're getting excited for, for what's to come. Yeah, Brittany, would you mind taking a couple of moments and telling us a little bit about what our next steps for the podcast are? I would love to share our next steps. So our goal this season is to release new episodes every two weeks for the academic year. That means about eight or so in the fall and hopefully another eight in the spring, bringing us about 16 episodes this season. However, since we are all existing in unprecedented times, it's quite possible we might fall short of this goal. However, if we do, we'll also try to make sure to keep you all informed of any changes to our intended schedule. We might even have some shorter bonus episodes in between our regularly scheduled programming. So stay subscribed to us wherever you get your podcasts. Anna, can you share with our audience what they can expect this season? We hope to highlight new and emerging research, scholarship and practice, and pedagogy in leadership education, including but not limited to the work of doctoral students, newly minted PhDs, and leadership educators from across the country working in some non-traditional settings. We're also planning to have guests who bring fresh perspectives and hot takes on teaching and learning leadership, as well as their perceptions on our field and where it's going. I want to thank the production team for joining me today. We'll get to hear from each of them more over the course of the season. But before we sign off, I'd love, Derek, if you could tell the folks where they can connect with us. 
Of course, we would love for you to connect to us beyond just whatever streaming platform you're using to listen to us now. So know that our podcast is available across major streaming platforms, even open access platforms as well. So some of our some of our podcast listeners like y'all may be using Spotify or Apple Podcasts or other platforms. We also do have a SoundCloud that is open to everybody as well. So if you are interested in using this for coursework or for additional scholarship or incorporation into programs, know that that's totally a possibility and we want to make sure we have this accessible to everybody. In addition to the podcast, you can also keep up with the NASPA Student Leadership Programs Knowledge Community specifically with our Instagram, which is at NASPA underscore SLPKC, our Facebook page, which is the Student Leadership Programs Knowledge Community, and our Twitter, which is NASPA SLPKC. And for ease of access, we will also include this in the show notes of this specific episode and our future episodes as well, so we can make sure that all of y'all stay connected, not only with our podcast, but also of our community as well. Thanks, Derek, Anna, and Brittany for joining me today. That's everything we've got. We'll see you next time. The NASPA SLPKC podcast is a production of the Student Affairs Administrators and Higher Education's Student Leadership Programs Knowledge Community. As the leading voice of student affairs, NASPA drives innovation and evidence-based, student-centered practice throughout higher education, nationally and globally. The mission of the SLPKC is to serve as a resource for higher education professionals who have an interest in leadership training, education, and development. The podcast is produced by Derek Pacheco and hosted by Brittany Devies, Anna Maya, and me, Vichanu. The music featured on our episodes comes from pixabay.com. Find us on Twitter at NASPA Tweets, send email to slpchairs at gmail.com, and find links to our references from this episode in the show notes. Thank you, as always, for listening.